Welcome to Race and Democracy, a podcast on the intersection between race, democracy, public policy, social justice, and citizenship. Welcome to Race and Democracy. On today's podcast, we are pleased to have a conversation with Professor Cherise Smith, who is chair and professor of African and African Diaspora Studies and executive director of the Galleries at Black Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Uh, Dr. Smith is the author of Enacting Others, Politics of Identity and Eleanor Anton, Nikki S. Lee, Adrian Piper, and Anna DeVere Smith. And her new book, which is Michael Ray Charles, which is um, really a beautiful book. This is an awesome book um, about really one of the foremost um, artists, um, um, African-American artists of, of our time. Sharice, uh, welcome to Race and Democracy. Thank you, Peniel. It's a pleasure to be here. So I want to talk about Michael Ray Charles and his work and how um, subversive the work is, how provocative the work is. Um, it's really through your book that I've really gotten a deeper understanding of Michael Ray Charles, his significance as a Black artist, um, and the way in which his work is sort of very provocative, but at the same time subversive, and it subverts themes of minstrelsy, themes of African-Americans as um, subhuman, themes of uh, us as being stereotypical and caricatures. And really, these are some of the, he, he subverts images that have been used to justify lynching, used to justify racial slavery, used to justify eugenics and scientific racism. Um, and some of that controversy that he causes that is, is connected to the fact that some people think that when we, when we do these images, we're perpetuating racial stereotypes and not subverting them. So I'd, I'd love to um, talk about that. Yes, so um, it's absolutely true that his work is um, uh, deeply challenging, um, especially in the 1990s. It challenged older generations of artists um, like Betty Saar, for example, and Howardina Pendel. Those are artists who have in the last five years um, come on really strong in their own right, even though they had at that time as well. Um, both of them have had major exhibitions at the Museum of Modern Art, for example, um, LA County Museum of Art, Virginia Museum of Fine Arts. Um, but those same artists, the artists who are kind of the, the age of the parents of Michael Ray Charles had a real problem with his work, um, as did the larger African-American community. I think now it is more um, accepted and, and part of the canon. Um, but what this book does is to historicize that work from the 1990s and some of the big um, kind of uh, cultural um, uh, touchstones that were happening in the 1990s. Um, and also to um, situate his current work in um, the art world that's happening now. Uh, I think what, what has happened with Michael Ray's work is that people um, really think about that kind of touchstone, touchstone late 1990s when he was in the middle of a um, censorship campaign, he and Carrot Walker, uh, and they, they don't think about the larger impact and footprint of the work. I want, you, I want you to uh, dive deeper into some of these touchstones of the 90s, because you talk about Spike Lee here, um, you, you talk about Bamboozle, but when he's coming out, uh, when we think about the 90s, it's an era of sort of 
the LA rebellions of 92, um, of Clintonism, um, you know, the Cosby show. Uh, it's, it's a different era in terms of blackness and black identity. Um, why is his work so provocative in the context of the 90s? Yeah, so um, you mentioned a couple of the really key um, moments. So it is um, coming on the heels of um, the culture wars that happened in the late 1990s that are in some ways spurred by um, the rise of the pandemic that was um, the HIV and AIDS crisis. Uh, and so there's also this turn toward what has been called identity politics. Um, when you see that um, particular groups and by particular, I mean African-Americans, Latinx folks, um, queer people are beginning to advocate um, for themselves using their own identity traits. Um, so that's a big thing that happens in the um, early to mid 1990s. There are several really um, uh, big kind of um, cultural historic moments. You mentioned the LA riots. There's also the Crown Heights riots that happened in New York City. Um, and there were major instances of police violence um, that galvanized the entire country. Um, think about Yusuf Hawkins, for example. Um, and so, um, you know, we might think about it as a kinder, gentler time. It was not. It was um, just as, <laughs> Um, as kind of um, corrosive and um, a lot happening then. And, and so why, why, why does Michael Ray Charles use these kind of imagery? So they're not necessarily an imagery of, you think about Spike Lee and do the right thing, sort of this black power imagery, even though Lee is certainly going to converge with him and bamboozle. Yes. But, but which is by 2000. But when we think about why is he using these imageries? In fact, the cover of your book, obviously, you know, your book um, yeah. has, the, the, you know, the, the watermelons and the, you know, very, yeah. you know, this is very provocative. Um, and, the, you know, there's an image of a black face there and watermelons are and black people have always been used to castigate yes. uh, the black community. So why is he going this route? Yeah, so I mean, there are a couple of big things that happen. Um, the first is that um, he's in graduate school at the University of Houston in the early part of the 1990s. And one of his classmates who happens to be white gives him um, a kind of plastic, um, for lack of a better word, Sambo figure. Uh, and um, at first, uh, Michael Ray just uh, describes throwing it off into the corner and not really paying attention to it, but then he somehow happens across it again, and he's like, what is this thing, and who is this supposed to represent? This doesn't look like any of the actual Black people that I know, and that becomes the kind of real crux of his work for the rest of his career. So essentially, he becomes interested in, okay, this is supposed to represent a Black person, but it doesn't look like black people at all. Instead, it looks like, you know, this, um, you know, weird plastic thing that the um, skin is black, not the actual color of the skin of people of African descent. Yeah. Um, it's got big red lips that are kind of um, falling apart because it's an old plastic thing. And he says, well, nobody I know has lips this color or, you know, that, are you know in this proportion on anyone's face, and so he um, uses this um, 
piece of, of racial violence against black people, something that was made to keep us in our place, um, to then kind of think through, okay, well, so this is what they think of us. Is this also what we think of ourselves? No, and he's clear about that, but he also thinks, well, look, in some ways we all kind of participate in creating these problematic images, whether we're making them ourselves um, as they're kind of manufactured in um, uh, factories, for example, because they're all kind of mass produced, mm -hmm. or we're thinking about um, TV shows where people are playing kind of buffoonish stereotypes. Yeah. And so what he becomes interested in is how in some ways we're all tussling with creating, dismantling stereotypes. And, and so, let, me, let, me, let me stop you right there. Why, why, Sharice, why was there so much pushback, especially in the 90s, against that? Because I see the point that you're saying and even reading your essay and seeing the work, I see how it's subversive. Yeah. Um, why was there so much pushback? Well, so just a little bit more history. So in the early 1990s, he starts using this work and then he begins to collect what is sometimes called contemptible collectibles, yeah. black memorabilia, Americana, however you want to talk about it um, or, or describe it. So he's using this work really kind of without incident for a couple of years, but then he really begins to get traction in the art world mm. and white collectors begin to um, buy the art and some black collectors are as well. And people are really like, well, why is he able to sell this challenging um, imagery? So that's really where the, the kind of crux is um, in the beginning. And so, you know, people who grew up with it find it really hurtful and they don't feel like it should be continued to be circulated. And so that's one of the main reasons why he gets the pushback that he does. But and what is his answer to that? What is Michael Ray Charles's, what is his response to look, black community saying, whether they're elites or people who are working class saying, this is really hurtful. We shouldn't have our children um, have to respond to this, especially as we get into the late 20th century or even now the 21st century. What is his, what is his response? You know, he, he typically takes the response of the historian and, and you know what historians think. And that is, let us collect this and let us study it rather than putting it in some uh, storage facility and never thinking about it again. He wants people to be able to um, deconstruct it, to critique it, to tear it apart, to understand, look, this is not us. I don't think this is us. And so, you know, one of the interesting things that happens is that he begins to collect this material at the same time that Oprah is collecting black memorabilia. Spike Lee begins to collect black memorabilia. Skip Gates, Skip Gates begins to collect yeah. black memorabilia, yeah. right? So yeah. it's in the early 1990s when it's affordable and there's a whole market that is created around elevating um, black memorabilia and putting it in a separate, um, in a different um, framework than it had been previously, where previously it was just, oh, we don't want to see that. Instead, we had middle and upper class black people who were saying, you know, okay, yeah, you know, it's a problem, but I also think it's endearing and um, I think it's challenging. And, um, and, and so people begin to, um, to collect it. And so he's one of the people like 
the Gateses and um, like the Oprahs of the world who begin to collect it. Um, and so sit, sit, I want you to situate Michael Ray Charles because you have um, um, the in here the 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 watermelon man, um, yeah. you know, very famous. Like situate him among um, both his generational peers and now how is he regarded? Because I want to talk about sort of art in the 21st century as well. Yeah. Situate him, you know, you, you talk about um, Kara Walker, Carrie we uh, May Weems, you talk yeah. about these different, very, very important black artists yeah. and, and situate him within that context. And, and where does he fit in and what, why is this, now he's a Rome Prize winner. He's certainly this well, well regarded yeah. uh, black art artist. And, and when you think about the 21st century, uh, recently the New York Times has had, you know, the Times, Sunday Times Magazine last week had all these black artists. I've never seen such a, yeah. a, a renaissance of, 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 black, um, of black artists being um, recognized in their own time. So where does he fit in into, into all of this? Yeah. Um, so there are kind of three questions that you asked. Let me start with the kind of historic one. The first is that um, there are the Betty Stars of the world, the Jeff Donaldsons, who way back in the 60s and 70s are using these same stereotypes to, um, in a much more kind of black power oriented way to combat stereotypes head on. Okay, so that's a kind of older generation. But then in the late 1980s, early 1990s, you see artists like Carrie Mae Weems, Kara Walker, uh, Fred Wilson, Renee Cox, who were doing much more conceptually oriented work where they're trying to think, okay, is this person really, is this thing really a person? No, they're not. And so they're playing with the difference between what the stereotype is and what it looks like versus what a real black person is. And so Michael Ray kind of fits in that larger conceptual art framework of um, artists who are, you know, kind of in their, now in their 50s and 60s and who, you know, have made it. Um, and then, you know, within the 21st century, these remain issues that um, artists continue to deal with in different ways, shapes, and forms. Um, you know, Michael Ray doesn't deal with it the same way he used to, Kara Walker doesn't, Carrie Mae Weems doesn't, but they remain issues that people think through. You know, issues like um, archetypes. So maybe the word stereotype is not um, as um, prevalent in the art world as it was once, but something like archetype, where you're thinking about um, a character that has a story that's associated with it. Uh, and these are, you know, big issues that people continue to think through. Um, if you think of someone like um, Micheline Thomas, who is um, some sometimes using very dark, shiny black um, pigments or materials to display the skin of black women. Um, that's thinking through um, standards of beauty as they relate to um, whiteness and blackness and the stereotypes that are associated with them, for example. So there are lots of artists that are still dealing with these issues. I want to ask you and then talk about um the current context, but when I think about the commodification of black art, especially over the last two decades, and, and especially now over the last, say, five, 10 years with Kahinde Wiley and just different artists who are allowed, who, who do portraiture, but some who do conceptual and abstract, but who've been allowed to do portraits of the President of the United States. 
first lady of the United States. Yeah. Um, when we think about uh, the New Yorker, which never had black artists doing covers, yeah. having black artists do dozens of covers. One, um, why do you think that's happening, especially post the black power movement of the 60s and 70s, and even post sort of the Basquiat moment of the 1980s and maybe early, or early 90s? Why, why do you think there's such a, um, um, sort of almost an institutionalization of at least a certain um, strata of black yep. artists. Why? I mean, I feel like it's a number of things. Um, first off, artists have been, black artists have been doing this work for a long time and um, they are, um, you know, now there's history of people doing it. So there's that. Um, there are people like um, the Lowry Stokes Sims, like the Thelma Goldens of the world, like the Kelly Jones of the world, who have integrated the kind of highest echelons of um, the art world by being directors of museums, by being full professors, and they have real authority to um, push agendas within the larger cultural world and not just the art world. Um, and then the other thing that's been happening is that more and more artists are getting art school trains. Now, by art school, I also want to include like film school um, in there. And so there's a way in which um, people are just kind of um, integrating out with their graduate degrees and with their experiences and with their connections out into the larger cultural context. Now, I think all of this wouldn't have happened if people were not making great art. And in fact, people are. <laughs> and so that's also- are there, are there cultural are there cultural touchstones? And I'm, and I'm thinking here, both sometimes um, racial violence when I think about Hurricane Katrina, but sometimes really racial optimism when I think about Barack and Michelle Obama, um, um, you know, or Trayvon Martin or Black Lives Matter. Is yeah. it social media and sort of Black Twitter and Black Instagram? Because certainly, we have a whole group of artists, including African-American artists uh, in Austin who have uh, high profiles now, thanks to, thanks to Instagram. And their, their works are, even, are really being collected by white and black collectors uh, yeah. as well. So is there a specific touchstone um, where, where sort of like black is in almost in a way that it never has been before because it's so institutionalized? Yeah, so I... I think I've now been in our history for long enough to know that it's cyclical. Okay. Um, I hope that the moment that we're in has um, a, a really long longevity, that it's um, true and consistent from here on out. Um, I'm skeptical of that. And I would venture to guess that other people are skeptical of it as well. And I guess I say that because, you know, what you've also seen is, an increase in um, the prices of artworks by Black artists, um, both on the primary market where galleries sell it or on the secondary market where they're being sold at auction, for example. And so, you know, we're about to, well, we are already in a very challenging time mm -hmm. financially. Um, and who knows how long that kind of bull market where the collecting of black artists will um, continue. And but, I, I want to I insert there. Yeah. When you think about, I wanted to talk about black art in the context of um, COVID-19 and this yeah. current pandemic, this crisis that's happening. Uh, when you think about especially black artists who 
are not a Michael Ray Charles, mm-hmm. right? Who are just struggling. They yeah. might have gone to art school or like you said, film school or some kind of, but but they're 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 trying to just find their voices. Um, one, uh, what's gonna happen to them in this sense? And we have a group of them in Austin, of course. Um, and and when we think about the future of black art and even appreciation for people Michael Ray Charles and the artists you study, do you think there's going to be a pre-COVID-19 and a post-COVID-19? Because things are right now are transforming, you know, 26 million people out of work. Certainly, I would probably think uh, because of of, uh, what I study that black artists suffer disproportionately um, during these time periods because we tend to suffer disproportionately in the context of crisis. So, So what do you think about art moving forward Black art, Black artists, and like you said, this bull market post-2020? Well, I mean, that's the million-dollar question. And I, I have been around long enough now, like you, to see both as a historian and, and as a person <laughs> that we do tend to suffer more from events like this. And so I worry that um, artists in the Black community and in other kind of minoritized communities are, are going to suffer um, as a result of this. Now, across the board, artists are going to because, you know, for every Kara Walker, Michael Ray Charles, who is a professor um, and, you know, has gallery representation and is doing well, there are probably thousands more artists just like them who do not have um, the same security because of their um, positionality. They, they're not professors. They don't have galleries. Um, they've not been, they've not had books written about them and articles written about them. They're not making a living making their art. And so Um, it's going to be a really tough time for all artists. And that's evidenced by the fact that um, I was just watching PBS last night. Uh, There was um, an article specifically or, you know, a kind of section specifically about how artists are making their way right now. And artists have always participated in a gig economy before it was even called a gig economy. And, you know, they were teaching people how to paint. They might have been painting houses. They might have been painting signs for stores. In addition to making their own art that they might sell to neighbors or or in galleries. And so, um, you know, and then the the kind of knock-on problem with that is because they're not regular work in a corporate environment, then they don't have the same access to things like, um, uh, what's the word, Um, services like unemployment, because they don't have exactly the same kind of documentation that um, other kinds of workers do. And so it's going to be a challenge. I want to get back to, for a second, commodification, because Soul Organization was um, supposed to be showing in Houston. I've talked that in the Black Power class. And yeah. Talk stuff about museums and Black Power. Um, so shout out to Soul of a Nation was supposed to be and will be soon at the Museum of Fine Art Houston. It was at the Brooklyn Museum. It was at the Road in Los well. Angeles. In Houston. Um, in okay. Houston. Yeah. Um, and and the attention that places like the New York Times have played to um, paid to Theaster Gates and and these different. I mean, easily it's the most striking thing I've, I've ever seen. Yeah. Um, where there's literally dozens of uh, black artists um, 
and featuring predominantly black women and men. So, you know, when we think about the 1960s, the black power moment was a very yeah. masculinist moment where there's room for black, uh, black women. Um, um, what, what, I mean, why that commodification? How is that commodification connected to universities thinking about DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion, art collectors thinking about that? And that's a long road. And I know black women and men protested in the 60s and 70s and throughout to make those things happen. And you mentioned Thelma Golden and all these important figures. But I still, why, why do we see something like Soul of the Nation, which I think is fabulous, but it's almost like a dream. Um, seeing that as somebody who grew up with that, it's almost like when somebody sees a comic book become a movie and you're like, wow, I can't believe so many people are watching this. Like, what, what explains that? Like, is that something, and I'm thinking Michael Ray Charles here, is that something where we should feel optimistic in the sense of like, wow, um, look at all this attention that we're getting from white people, but from just, you know, everyone, yeah. you know? Yeah. That like, we're serious artists. We are serious artists. Yeah. So that's an interesting question and um, a, a big question in some ways. So I entered the museum profession early 1990s um, when I was starting my master's degree. And at that point, there was a real interest, as there is now, in uh, diversifying museums. They recognized back in the early 1990s, oh, we don't have enough staff. We don't have enough representation on the walls of um, people of color or women for that matter. Uh, and so there was a big push to do fellowships, which I was a beneficiary of, um, to um, introduce people into the museum world and to have us stay inside museums. And some of us did. Um, and some of us went on to do our PhDs. Many of us did that. And we're still in art history. Um, that's my generation and even a little bit older. Uh, and so on the one hand, when we, um, you know, middle-aged folks, I will call myself, um, middle career folks, I will call myself, um, when we look at this, oh, there's not enough diversity in the museums and look at everything that museums are doing to um, integrate museums, it's a little bit of a slap in the face because that's what they said about us <laughs> 20 something years ago. Um, and so, and it's work that we've continued to do all that time, just like our elders did before we came along. But it's hard to push the needle, right, Sharice? It really is. Yeah. It really is hard to push the needle and, and for a couple of reasons. And I want us to get back to Soul of a Nation because I, I want to ask you about it. But I think one of the problems is that um, the art world is this very silent and very insidious um, kind of bastion of whiteness yeah. and of white supremacy. And it's it kind of flies in the face of everything that you think about um, the art world because you think of it as liberal and it is and you think of it as progressive, and it is, except that it was started to study Renaissance art, Greek art, Roman art, um, and that has been the kind of pinnacle of what art history is thought to be. And so what that means is the rest of us, women, people of color, um, we are not, you know, part of the, the standard. And so it's, it continues to be this push to make inroads into museums where staff are concerned, where collecting is concerned. Um, and 
even the kind, the places in museums where you see black people, um, are they in the curatorial departments? Not so much. Are they in security? Yes. Are they in the education departments as teachers? Yes, more often than not. And so, you know, there's, there continues to be a kind of stratification in types of jobs that people within, um, that people of color within museums can actually have. Now, the flip side of this, and I, I think this is something that um, you'll also be interested in, in thinking through, is then how do Black people actually, how do and do they actually value art by Black people? And do they actually consider it integral to um, our movements for social justice? Which I, that's I, want, I want to, I want to yeah. ask you, higher education, Black studies, the yeah. two, as far as I'm concerned, the two leading Black studies um, um, departments and universes in the world are at UT Austin and Harvard. And um, both have fabulous art museums and yeah. art institutions, right, yeah. uh, in the United States, the two leading. Um, one, um, why is it so important that we study Black art and, you know, pedagogically, our students, that they see that? Um, and that connected in terms of when we think about art and democracy, because a lot of times people talk about art and democracy, but not black art and democracy. Yeah. So, so, and when I think about that, I'm thinking of, you know, Aaron Douglas building more stately mansions, you know, obviously uh, Jacob Lawrence, uh, just so many um, different, you know, black artists uh, over, over the years and decades and centuries. But why people who might not know about um, the intricacies of black studies in higher education would be very surprised that, UT not only has a department, but they have the galleries and they have, you know, Ayupra and all that, but the galleries, the art would be very surprising. Um, wh why is this so important? Yeah, I mean, um, I, I would agree with you. I think that um, we at UT are up there with the Harvards of the world and certainly in terms of um, our vision and the scope with which we practice Black studies. Um, and you know, having been a fellow at the Du Bois Institute back in the day, um, I know very firsthand how um, committed to art Skip Gates is. Committed to it as a collector, committed to it as a scholar, committed to it as someone who just has a basic interest in it and has written about it for years. So, um, you know, he is not an art historian, but he is a, a kind of honorary art historian and he's certainly pushed, um, pushed, art history for the better. Um, and, you know, it's interesting to think through how he's done that. Partially it has been through recognizing that you have to have black art historians to actually teach it. Um, you know, now Sarah Lewis is there, Cheryl Finley has been there, Deborah Willis, um, Gwendolyn Bois Shaw. So there's been a long line of um, art historians who have um, been at Harvard teaching people. Um, and then the creation of the galleries there. Um, the Cooper Museum, it is just a, you know, really important thing that he saw needed to happen as integral to Black study. So we here at UT have had um, similar thoughts and similar goals. So, um, you know, the Center for African and African American Studies here was started in 1969, um, partnering with Mexican American Studies split off a couple of years after that in the early 1970s. 
And then it's um, in the kind of early 2000s that the idea to departmentalize really kind of grabs hold at um, University of Texas. And so right around 2008, 2009, there's the creation of the larger Black Studies um, at UT. And that's a Department of African and African Diaspora Studies, an Institute for Urban Policy Research and Analysis, and then there's the center. And then in the last couple of years, the art galleries at Black Studies um, were created. And the art galleries at Black Studies are two different gallery um, spaces. One of them is in um, our building, in the Gordon White Building, which um, houses Black and Latino studies. And then we have, um, and that's about a 400 square foot uh, space. And then we have a second gallery that is more of a traditional state-of-the-art white box gallery space, white walls, beautiful lighting, um, hardwood floors, really in the kind of tradition of... Um, where is that located? The second one. That is um, in the Jester Hall, which is one of the largest um, dormitories in the world. I think it's got 3,000 students that live there. Um, and so the Christian Green Gallery, as it's called, is named after two donors um, who um, donated to UT uh, a substantial body of artworks to um, create the gallery in concert with money that was provided by the um, president's office uh, and the dean's office, for example. And so what the art galleries at Black Studies do is to celebrate art by people of color and to um, think about art and its relationship to social justice. And so we've done a couple of really important exhibitions. Um, one of them was called March On. Um, that showed uh, the various ways that um, John Lewis's life um, matters. So it had um, Congressman John Lewis, former yes, that's right. student nonviolent coordinating committee. Yes, exactly. Um, and so John Lewis's, uh, the illustrations for what becomes the graphic memoir. Yeah, March. March. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Right. Um, those illustrations were on view at the Christian Green Gallery, along with artwork um, that came from the rest of the University of Texas. So um, a large scale painting by Charles White. Uh, photographs by David Duncan um, from the Civil Rights Movement that we borrowed from the Harry Ransom Center. Um, you know, small comic books that we purchased specifically for the exhibition for people to see the various kinds of media that um, people within the Civil Rights Movement, SNCC for example, use to circulate their information both in uh, and their ideology in an artwork form, but also in um, more kind of commercial, you know, like comic book uh, form. And so that that's a great exhibition. Uh, Rebecca G Giordano did that show. I'm really happy with that exhibition. Another fantastic show was by Daoud Bey. He is a MacArthur Genius Award-winning yeah. photographer um, who recently had a book come out. He has, um, for the last few years specialized in portraiture, but he also does these fantastic um, landscapes um, in Harlem, in Chicago, uh, and around the country. Uh, and so there are, are lots and lots of stories that we tell. Um, one artist that we've shown quite a bit of is um, Deborah Roberts. 
Um, you alluded to her earlier. Well, she I know is Deborah. An, yeah, Deborah's yeah. Right. an internationally recognized artist who lives in Austin. Yes, that, that is right. And um, Deborah Roberts is um, now best known for her collages and her paintings. Um, her work has been shown in the gallery to um, very great um, applause and appreciation. So yeah, we're we're doing good work. I'm proud of it. All right, my final question is is a more personal one. What what got you interested in both the work of Michael Ray Charles, but also um, curating and, and promoting and studying uh, Black art? I'm going to start with the last question, or the second question, and, and work my way. Um, so I went to um, a small private high school in LA, and it was one of those schools that had previously been um, a, a women-only, a girls-only um, Episcopal school. And one of the kind of holdovers for the wives, and I'm putting that in quotes, um, that they expected that they were making was that they had music appreciation and art appreciation. <laughs> and so my senior year, I took art appreciation and music appreciation. Um, and one of the really profound things that you had to do for the art appreciation class, um, and this is as a 16 and 17 year old, you had to drive yourself to a museum to see art <laughs> and not just have your parents take you to <laughs> a museum. And so um, I drove myself to the J. Paul Getty Museum as it was called back then. Um, oh yeah, I love that museum. Love yeah, that. it's a fantastic museum. And I just thought this place is amazing. And at that point they just had um, the Getty Malibu. Um, there wasn't yet um, the Getty Center. And um, if you haven't been there, I, I know you have, but it's a, a replica of an um, Italian Pompeian uh, villa. It's right on the coast, right on the cliff of, yeah, of PCH overlooking the Pacific. And it's the most gorgeous and insanely beautiful site. And so there I was 17 and really impressed with that. <laughs> and I thought, you know, how, how can I do more of this? And so when I went to college, I was really interested in the humanities and um, I started being interested in the stories that, um, that you would find in art and in novels. Um, and that's basically how I got hooked in the very first place. And then I um, started working in museums and I saw that um, there was a real need to integrate them, to have more people of color go to museums, to have more people of color working in museums. And so, you know, one of the big things that continues to drive me and what made me kind of stick with art history in the first place is to give people a real um, feeling of ownership of art. And you know, I mean that in a couple of ways. I mean that we people of color feel like we belong in museums. Not to go and feel uncomfortable or awkward, but to feel like I belong here just like anyone else belongs here. Um, and then also to feel like um, they can own art, whatever kind of art it is. Maybe it's a reproduction, maybe it's an original, but to know that it can be within your you know, discretionary budget. It's not just millions of dollars that one spends on a Basquiat or a Pollock or something. And so you know, those are 
those are the the kind of big things that um, drove me to art history and and that um, make me stick with it because I feel like it's a uh, um, it's a kind of basic right of ours uh, to also have access to art. All right, and I'm glad that you were so inspired. We're gonna we're gonna the takeaway I'm gonna say is art as a human right, black art as a human right. Um, this this uh, this last stanza. Um, we've been talking with Cherise Smith, who is professor of African-American studies at the University of Texas, the chair of the African-American studies department there. And her latest book is Michael Ray Charles. Um, does this book have a subtitle? A retrospective. A retrospective, yes. And it's, it's beautiful. University of Texas Press, everybody should go um, purchase it. And it's got such beautiful uh, imagery and, and analysis in there. It's, thank you. Analysis in there, it's, it's beautiful. Um, so Sharice, uh, thank you. For, 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 for sharing your knowledge with us. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode. And you can check out related content on Twitter at Peniel Joseph. That's P-E-N-I-E-L-J-O-S-E-P-H. And our website, csrd.lbj.utexas.edu. And the Center for Study of Race and Democracy is on Facebook as well. This podcast was recorded at the Liberal Arts Development Studio at the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. Thank you.